My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Hello and welcome back to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host as always. And today I have the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Ronell Hugh. How are you, Ronell? I'm good, Kurt. How are you doing? Very good. I'm excited to have you on here. And, uh, you know, as different speakers uh, get added to our, or different uh, interviewees get added to our schedule, it's fun to, to see the, you know, to study up on the background. And, and uh, I always get excited for the conversation. So when, when people ask you uh, what you do for work, what do you tell them? You know, I, you know, I, when people ask me that question, the first thing I tell them is, you know, I'm first and foremost actually a father and husband. That's where I start. Love it. And uh, it's kind of key to something that I've identified for myself that I want to be very focused on. And so that I'm not just a, a business professional, but I have a bigger responsibility um, yeah. that I take very seriously. But when I get to the point of actually talking about work, it's um, I tell people I'm a marketer. Uh, I'm curious about people. Um, and so it always starts there. I've always been curious about people. And I've loved learning about people since I was a child growing up over in Europe and uh and that's kind of extended all the, its way all the way through into my professional life as a marketer for the last probably 16 years. Nice. So how, uh, how many kids you got? I have four kids, two boys, two girls. Nice. And you're in, so, you said the Highland area. And so, or let's say that's uh, Utah County Highland, right? Yes, Utah County Highland. And so south of Salt Lake City, um, we've lived here for almost five, five years. So we moved here from Seattle, Washington. Um, and took a, I took a job here with Adobe um, almost five years ago, but I've since then changed jobs over the last couple of months. So <laughs> made a little change, but nice. yeah. And where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Germany. Yeah, I grew up in Germany um, and in North Carolina and England. So I spent seven years in Germany in a small town just west of Frankfurt. And uh, then spent about two years in Raleigh, North Carolina area. So lived in a small town named Nightdale. And so I'm a big Carolina Tar Heels fan, um, grew up very passionate about basketball. Um, and then when I was about 10, we moved to England. So I lived in a town called Coventry. So it's in the West Midlands area of, of England. I uh, went to high school there. Um, and that's actually where my family became members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was when we lived in England. So it's um, had to travel around the world to get to that point, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And how old were you when you joined the church then? How old um, I was 14. I was 14. Nice. And, it, and so was it uh, th- th- like the military that moved your family around or why did they move to so many countries? Yeah, it's a good question. We, so my dad was um, in the military in Germany. Um, and my mom actually is from Jamaica, but immigrated to England when she was 10. And when she's about 16, most kids in England, they graduate from high school around 16. She just traveled um, all over Europe and ended up in Germany. And so she met my father. Um, when he was in the military there in Germany and she was working at a restaurant and a bar and that's how they met. So, um, it's typical, you know, probably one of those military stories that you hear about. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And, and what was the story behind uh, joining the church? Was it something that your entire family did together and a choice that you all made? Yeah, we, um, when we joined the church, we, you know, we were in England and we'd lived there for a couple of years and we had a pretty, um, I would say, dramatic experience, dramatic experience. I think uh, we, you know, we were homeless for, for several months um, due to some things that happened in our family. And when we came out of living in a, in a homeless shelter, the, we were put into some government housing. And it was interesting when we were in the, the government housing, my father, he was like, you know, my dad was like, Hey, we need to, we need to find a church again. We'd, we'd always gone to church growing up. I mean, in Germany, I was Christian Catholic um, in North Carolina, I went to Southern Baptist, Methodist and Jehovah Witnesses. And then when we moved to England, we just stopped going. We just didn't have any religion that we participated in or were part of. And so we decided to, you know, we decided to to go back. And so my dad went out. He was searching. You know, it was interesting. I, I tell people the story. 
he went to many different churches. Um, I remember going with him on a few of those trips where we would just go and, and kind of visit with different congregations. And he just happened upon uh, some sister missionaries who were out doing what they do, tracting. And, uh, and they just had a conversation with them. And the next thing we know, we're, we're meeting with the sister missionaries. And so was the, like, from, from the time you were baptized, were you pretty much just all into the gospel? Like it really impacted you and, uh, and it really was a part of your life ever since then? Yeah, in a way it was. I mean, I grew up, like I was saying, you know, very religious. I mean, as a child, I remember my mom had this, or my family had this Bible book, right? It was yellow, and it was Bible stories, and it had pictures, and it had these cassette tapes that tells you how old I am, but it was cassette tapes. And we, you know, with me and my brother would listen to it. And it was amazing because, it, you know, we I learned so much about the prophets of old, you know? So when I when I think of religion, I mean, I'm a I'm a product of the Bible, from my upbringing. And so when the missionaries came along and, and, you know, they shared with us the gospel of Jesus Christ and started talking about Joseph Smith and how we have modern day prophets. I was like, well, well, duh. Like, I mean, if you read the Bible, you would, you would understand that it'd be something that you'd be aware of. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, with all the things that they taught around family and, and kind of the need for baptism, it just felt right. I'd been, I'd gone to so many different churches where it was a distinct feeling that I felt. And that feeling has stayed with me ever since. And I think has been one of the profound pieces for me in my life that I've been able to hang on to. Um, and, and I guess we all know that feeling. If you remember the church, we talk about the Holy Ghost and kind of we each feel it in our own unique way. But it, it spoke to me, you know, and I, and I think it really confirmed to me the things that I had learned from the missionaries. And so, yeah, it was foundational. And I'd been, I've been pretty much an active member of the church since then. He served a mission um, to Ogden and from 1998 to 2000. Um, went to BYU twice um, and have been active in my engagements with the church and the gospel um, since then. So awesome. it's been a, it's been a massive blessing for me in my life. So Utah, I mean, you back here. Yeah. It's kind of, I keep getting hooked back to, to Utah for sure. I mean, when we, before my mission, I actually was an EFY counselor and came out and I thought, Oh, this will be my first and only introduction to, to Utah. And then I'd go on my mission somewhere else. But then it was while I was here, I got my mission call <laughs> to serve in Ogden. And so it was really a unique experience. You know, I, I'd never spent a ton of time here and I learned a lot about um, myself and as well, but it was a, it was really a cool experience. My brother actually was serving at the same time. He, he went out in April of 98. And I went into the MPC in August. And so we were both serving in Utah. He was in the Salt Lake City mission and I was in the, the Ogden mission. So it's pretty cool. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, um, I mean, growing up, did, did you always perceive yourself going in a, like a business direction with your career? You know, growing up, um, I wanted to be a pilot actually. And so I'm not sure, you know, what degree I took and went in a different direction. Right. But as a kid, I was like, I would love to be a pilot. And, um, and then when I started college, um, I went to Southern Virginia college. So for a year, um, and before my mission and was playing soccer there and then realized, you know, I probably sports is not gonna be on my path. I was a really good soccer player, but it wasn't like I wanted to focus on sports and thought I wanted to really focus on, um, my academics and really get into not sure what, but have a career outside of, you know, athletics. And, um, it was sometime after my mission, I was at BYU Idaho when I got a notification from BYU about how we, they needed more diversity at their communications program, which is kind of funny. It came out of nowhere. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do from a career standpoint. And I was like, well, communications really fits me. I'm really good. I'm a writer. I feel I could write really well. It was doing really well in my, some of my English courses and, and it just spoke to me. So I started actually my career. I did my undergraduate in communications emphasis in PR and started my career actually in sports um, working for Real Salt Lake. So it came back around, but I was able to now work on it more of a business side than, you know, than, you know, from an athletic or player side. And yeah. it was phenomenal. So I, I, that's kind of where it sparked the interest, right? That's where the interest sparked for me to kind of be in the business world. And it was actually at BYU Idaho where I came across some people who were there doing an informational about getting an MBA. So I kind of got my first introduction to an MBA program um, while I was at BYU Idaho too. Nice. And so was there much time between graduating with your undergrad and MBA school or uh, what was that transition like? Yeah, there was. So I, you know, I spent four years working. So I, you know, I shared a little bit. I went, I went and worked for Real Salt Lake. So Real Salt Lake was my first job out of, out of undergrad. And I, you know, it was fortunate for me to get that opportunity is right 
I started working there right from their inception. So did all their media relations right from the beginning. And it was a phenomenal experience. But soon after getting there, or not soon after getting there, but after being there like a year and a half, I realized, wow, sports is fun and definitely on the business side. But I realized you don't make a lot of you know money in sports. Like it's fun to be around the players and to kind of help build that type of experience for fans who come. <laughs> but you, you, just, you really don't, you know, you don't really generate a lot of, you know, funds for yourself in a way. So I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do next in my career? And a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about, you know, coming over and working in hardware, you know, hardware marketing and, and sales and field marketing? And so I joined a company called, uh, called HP and started that route and did that for a couple of years. And during that time, you know, I was one of those people who had to take the, uh, the GMAT multiple times. I actually paid for it eight times, took it seven times. So I missed it somewhere there. Actually, I know why, how I missed it, but I missed it once. Um, but I had to take it. I was not really good at tests, and uh, but I really wanted to get into business school. And so, uh, but that, those four years of experience was super foundational for me. I learned a ton about myself, ton about the things that I was interested in, you know, and on why I would want to go and get an MBA because I felt like I wanted to be more upstream, meaning I wanted to be more up in strategy and helping to figure out what we're making and building for customers or what services and products the customers need. I had a high interest in that area. And so it kind of pointed me to um, the business school. And when I got in, it was just, you know, kind of that path that I think helped expedite that experience for myself. Yeah. And so was it pretty discouraging taking the GMAT so many times? I mean, what did you ever have this feeling of maybe this isn't my path? Or what would you say to others that are maybe struggling to really perform well on the, the GMAT so they can move forward? Yeah, it's... um. It was discouraging um, at some points, uh, for sure. I, and I, I, it's interesting because I felt this overwhelming push to do it, though. And it was just kind of like my wife and I would have many conversations about it. Like, hey, what? why is this not working out? Like, we feel like this is right. Um, and the one thing that I took away from it is this kind of perseverance, you know, and kind of keep pushing through. And that, that feeling of like, hey, this is the path you're supposed to go down. You're supposed to be in the program. And part of me feels like it was a timing thing because the class that I joined at the BYU Merit School was the the right class for me. I made some of the most um, the best friends possible, I think, for me. And it was just a good class of, of students who I think were much like me and were super helpful in my career um, and academically when I was at school. But we've been really close friends since then. So I think it was timing, but also it was more of like, hey, I needed to work through this, you know. And it's much like a career. Like when you get into careers, like things may or may not go your way. And you have to be able to find a way to, to maintain the course or find inspiration or find, you know, individuals who can to who can inspire you and kind of lift you up or people you can go to to kind of continue to, 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 to drive yourself. And, you know, it made me think after that getting my MBA, how important that pre MBA experience was of getting the of getting my GMAT score and being prepared for that and doing that because it helped me to kind of persevere when I was in business school, because th- there were some challenging times even when I got into school, but mm. um, it kind of helped set the tone for me to kind of push and be and persevere. Yeah. Yeah. So was there uh, much of a, did you have a few schools you were deciding on or was BYU always the, the obvious choice? You know, I, there was a few schools that I was looking at, you know, we, my wife's family's from Oregon. So we had looked at the university of Oregon as well as Willamette university. Cause we were thought about being close to our family. And then I thought about Thunderbird as well. And because I wanted to do international business, having grown up overseas, it was something that was top of mind for me. And um, we knew we wanted to stay more in the West. And so, you know, I was fortunate I got into both Thunderbird um, and the schools in Oregon as well as BYU, but we just felt really strongly that BYU was where we're supposed to be. We actually just lived down the street um, from the Tanner building. So we lived down Bulldog. Um, and, and so it was like less than a mile and a half to get to school. We owned a condo and that was part of it, but it just felt overwhelmingly like the right thing. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of people will talk about, how cost effective it is to go to the merit school. And that could have been one of the aspects of it, but it really was one of those things for us where like, Hey, everything made sense. Like it was good for our family. We had two kids at the time. It allowed my wife to have a level of comfort and uh, we treated it like a work day. So I'd leave at eight, come back at five. Um, and the idea was like, Hey, let's, let's try to create as normal experience for my wife and my kids while I'm getting an MBA uh, to help me in my career to hopefully further our family's abilities to do, you know, many wonderful things. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Well, as we do with these uh, interviews, I had you put a list together of some principles and perspectives or, or advice that maybe you've you've learned along your uh, school and professional path here. And uh, so let's go through these and see what we can learn. The first one is your identity is not the company you work for. Expound on that. 
Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting one for me. Um, my first semester in business school, um, I remember going to the National Black MBA Conference, and you know many MBA programs would go to this uh, this conference to hopefully get internships. And I showed up, you know, pretty green as you can imagine, like mo- most uh, first year MBAs, first semester MBAs. And I'm walking around the floor, and I um, I get pulled in by the recruiters at Target. They're like, "Hey, you want to come interview here? This is where you want to be." And I'm like, "Ah, oh, no, I don't think I want to be in retail. It's not really what I'm focused on. Not interested in that." And and it was funny. They were like, they kept you know talking to me, and that's so why I, I started talking to a recruiter, and that turned into me getting a couple of interviews there. And and next thing I know, I'm flying back to Minneapolis to interview with Target, um, Target.com for an opportunity. And it was interesting. I was there. Um, I think I was the only BYU student. Uh, they interview from a, at a lot of top programs and take a lot of candidates from a lot of top programs. And I remember ha- going through my interview that day and having that experience. And then I was in the CEO of Target.com's office. He was my final interview. And it was interesting because um, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, this is pretty profound thinking about where I was, you know, talking about taking the GMAT <laughs> seven times. And now I'm sitting in this office and he gets up and I can't remember his name, but he gets up and says, Hey, I need to go to the restroom. I'll be back in a few minutes. So I look, I was sitting there and his thought hit me. I was like, you don't, you don't want this internship. And I was like, that's weird. Like, well, I don't understand. And, and this idea of like, Hey, your identity is not the company you work for. It started then because I started to realize that, Hey, you, you know, it's not just about the company that you're working for. It's about you and like who you are and what you need and not just what you need, but what you can contribute to the company, the community, um, and also, you know, the church in the area where you're going. And, I, and it, that had a profound impact on me as I thought about uh, my career since then, like to, making choices about our, my career and different jobs that I've taken. My wife and I will often sit down and say, well, how will this bless not just us, but how can we be an impact in the community that we're going to? How much work can we learn in those communities? Or what do we think we can learn by moving to a community or that, that state or that, or that city? as well as, you know, what can I take away or benefit or give to the job that I have? And so it really started there. And so this idea of like your identity is not the company you work for. A lot of folks will want the, the company, like, hey, I want to be at this company. This company is what I believe in and I'm passionate about it. And as I've learned through my career, it's not literally about the brand or the company you work for. Um, it's really has been about, hey, who, who am I as a person? What do, what do I need to help me to grow? But also how am I contributing in a meaningful way where not just the organization is benefiting, but I'm also being a leader in my organization and they're seeing me as a leader, but also how am I able to impact those I'm around in the community as well? And so a lot of times you can put so much emphasis, you know, MBA students that I found when I got into business school and especially during my second year when I was mentoring others. And I, and since then, uh, they put so much pressure on themselves about like, you, you, you and you have to get a job. You want to get a job because that's part of the reason why you go. But I think part of that is also figuring out who you are, who you are as a business professional. What do you bring to the table? What's your identity um, inclusive, both personally and professionally? And so your identity isn't just your professional identity, right? And that's yeah. why I said at the beginning of this, you know, it's it's as much about, you know, I'm a father and husband first before I get into what I've done professionally. Like that's my identity is that, you know, my work is what I do to help benefit you know, my family, um, and, you know, and that's really important to me because I don't want to get lost in the world of like, Hey, pushing myself for professional accolades. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. And as you mentioned, like a lot of, uh, MBA, you know, uh, or those pursuing want, or who want to pursue an MBA, they sort of get their identity wrapped up into what school they attend. Right. And, and, uh, as I've done a variety of these, uh, interviews, Many of them, you know, there's a few that said it was Harvard or nothing, you know, and and it, with hindsight now, they're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have been so, you know, focused on Harvard. But, you know, some of them got there and that's great. But sometimes our our identity gets so wrapped up in the schools we attend to, or the, the places we work when in reality, we just have to look for opportunities that are going to bless our life and help us in our personal development the best. Right? Yeah, no, I, to- I completely agree. And I think I think it's great because I, I mean, I remember going to Walmart and when I went to Walmart after business school, I worked with people from Harvard, Duke, UNC, Michigan, Indiana, Vanderbilt, University of Texas, Kellogg, and then obviously BYU, and, and, and amazing programs, right? A ton of amazing schools. And I'm still really close to a lot of these individuals. But the thing I learned, it didn't really matter about the this, this, this program. Um, and, I, and BYU, as a, as a graduate of BYU, I, I fared really well, actually, coming out of the program. And if, if I think it was very competitive with a lot of other schools, but it wasn't about the competitiveness. I loved, like I said at the beginning, like I'm so curious about people. So I love meeting all these people from other programs 
So now, you know, I, I have, and so we never, it wasn't like we talked about schools or kind of, we did, you identified with your school, but when you're in the professional world, you're just like, Hey, these are my, these are my peers. These are people I work with now. Like, you know, and, and that became something that I really thought much about. Like my identity became like, what am I presenting then to people? Like, how am I, what's individuals first experience with me? Like when I go into a room or when I'm engaging with folks, you know, what's their first impression of me and what do they walk away from feeling and knowing um, about me. And, and, and it provided me a lot like unique experiences actually. Cause you know, um, coming, actually I'll tell you this, show you this story going to Walmart. One of the first things that happened to me was I was walking on the marketing floor. I think, I think it was like four or 500 people on the marketing floor. And, um, Andrea Thomas, who you might know, she, um, was at, Mar- she was in marketing there and she, um, you know, she was one of the individuals that recruited me, but I get pulled into this guy's office. Um, who's our VP of advertising, Greg Warren. And Greg was like, come here. I got to talk to you. I've never seen a black member of the church before. <laughs> right. And so that, like the, it, so that was my identity to him was like, you're a black member of the church. And he had the senior. There, there was a few people, members of the church on the floor. Right. But he was like, and it was funny. We'd have this dialogue all the time. Like he'd call me in his office cause he had a question and he's since gone on to become a pastor. He's left the professional world and has gone into religion, you know, and as a pastor to church, but he, people would always tell me like, we're now, how do you get so much time with Greg? Like I've been trying to get time with him. I was like, Hey, if you want to talk religion and talk about what you believe in, I think he'd welcome the, <laughs> welcome into his office to have that conversation. But I think that that's kind of like, you know, it's interesting. That's what I mean. Like that's my, your identity is more than just like the company, right? Cause people start to, to see you. And I think as members of the church, you get that depending on, and I think a lot of it depends on how, like how we carry ourselves. If we're willing to be open about it. Um, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who's like pounding people's door down, but when I'm open to having conversations about it and, and will, and, and happy to, because I think it's part of, as we know, it's part of our responsibility, but, um, but yeah, I love, I love having um, that as a thought, you know, and hopefully folks, as they think about it, like what's your identity? Cause if your identity, I think sometimes if your identity is the company you work for, is that truly who you are? Right. Um, and hopefully you can be the same in, in and outside of work because your identity should transcend yeah. all the areas that you have a chance to influence. The next principle is when you're comfortable, get uncomfortable, right? This is uh, getting out of that comfort zone is going to be crucial. Yeah, this is, you know, I think this hit me pretty hard. Um, and it's actually been something I've thought of a lot during my career because I think, you know, I've worked at many companies, worked at, you know, I said my pre-MBA experience, worked in sports, worked at AP, then post, I've worked at Walmart, Xbox, Adobe, and now a company called Drift based out of Boston. And I've always pushed myself to, to kind of want to learn and grow. And I feel sometimes when you get comfortable, you start to kind of, you get complacent, right? And I think part of what my desire has always been is to be um, more com- uncomfortable, right? I use this phrase, um, and, and it's interesting. Sometimes when I interview and I'm talking to, to students who are speaking, I said I, I, I say that have this kind of saying, and you hear people saying like, "Hey, I, I drink the Kool Aid," right? You go into an, you know, you've heard probably that saying before, the phrase before. And I usually tell people like, "Well, I drink 50% of the Kool Aid," and they're like, "Well, what do you mean?" And I was like, "Well, 50% of the Kool Aid for me is like I'm in 100% that 50%, right? Like I'll come in and I'll be a professional, I'll do what I need to do, but the other 50%, I'm a questioning a few things. There's things that will pop up that I'm like, I don't understand that. You know, I don't understand like why we do that or, you know, what that means. And I'm just trying to get more clarity. And that kind of is kind of has helped me to kind of really force myself to be uncomfortable because you can get into the motions of doing a job or being in a place. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, by being uncomfortable, meaning like you're opening yourself up and kind of allowing yourself to um, be exposed or to experience different things, it allows you to grow and learn. Right. And that actually creates who creates, you know, a, a better environment for, for development, but also helps you to be more, uh, I think, influential in companies as well, because you're tackling problems from a different viewpoint. You're not always looking at it from the same way. You're bringing something unique because you're willing to kind of step back. Um, but it also kind of pushes on the other end of it too. Like from a career standpoint, when you get to a point where you're very comfortable, like when you're doing things and things become very rote or routine for you, like are you willing to get uncomfortable? Are you willing to kind of step out and say like, I'm going to go find something different. And each of my career moves has been somewhat of that. Like when I left Walmart, actually when I went to Walmart, somebody said to me, Hey, you won't be able to get outside of retail when you go to Walmart. And I thought that was interesting. I was like, really, I won't be able to. And they're like, yeah, because once you're in the retail, everybody will think of you as being a retail marketer and a retail professional. So you might be able to go into sales, but you may not be able to go into other parts of the business. And you know, one of the things that I felt like I was pretty competent at was networking. And so I did a ton of networking. And I remember meeting with a gentleman who I'd worked with at, at Microsoft. And that got me my foot into the door at Microsoft. 
but that's kind of how I've done my career. I was like, hey, I want to be uncomfortable again, and I'm ready to take on a new challenge. It could be at the same company or at a different company. So allow, I allow myself to do that. When I came to Adobe, it was the same thing. I had no experience in enterprise software. And I left Xbox gaming and came to Adobe to enterprise software. And people were like, well, why did you do that? And I said, well, I'd gotten really comfortable at Xbox. I'd been in gaming for like six years, and I knew the industry. Um, and of course, there's more I could have learned. But I then said you know, I, to myself, and I, as I was talking to my wife, and we were thinking through like what's next for us and what's next for me, you know, I, I said, you know, this Adobe thing could be really good because it gives me an opportunity to learn a whole new industry and gives me exposure to new ways of thinking and more development. So that uncomfortableness has then, again, sparked an opportunity for me to learn and grow. And it's given me great opportunities, again, to be an influence, not just inside the company, but in my community where I live. Yeah, no, I love that. Just the way you, it's really unique how you unpack that because, you know, this concept of, you know, being outside your comfort zone can be cliche at times, but I love how you do it and you explain it in the context of, uh, you know, like a career, like you were in retail so long. And so you sort of feel like, oh, I got to, the, the only good next job has to be in retail because that's where my experience is. But we sometimes accidentally get too comfortable by pigeonholing ourselves in a certain type of industry or job. And then we get stuck there and then yeah. we naturally become comfortable there. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think that's what happens. And I think, and that's okay. I think for everybody, it's, it's different for everybody, right? You can be comfortable and, and that's something that you're looking for. Um, but I always think, you know, from a gospel perspective, I think, you know, we know the gospel is about restoration and it's about change. You know, I mean, all of us, we're going through change, hopefully continuously because we're, we're making changes to ourselves and who we are. And I think that's part of the earthly experience that I feel like Heavenly Father wants for me. To kind of have like my business experience is allowing me to become a better person, and hopefully I'm helping others become a better person as well as learning from other people. But it's by allowing myself to be uncomfortable, getting out of those comfortable situations, putting myself in new exper- experiences or businesses where I'm almost forced to. Right? Like you, you can't. I, you when you're put in those situations, you can you can't just sit back. You have to immerse yourself. Right? And so you're you're almost in a way forcing yourself to be uncomfortable by doing that. Yeah, love it. Your next principle is find and know your personal motivators and passions. How have you done that? You know, it took me, it took me, um, I think, four or five years to get comfortable with this. Because um, I think a lot of times companies will ask you, or interviewers, when you're, you know, looking at jobs, will ask you, like, what's your motivators? What are you passionate about? And, you know, or where do you want to be in three to five years? You know, and, and for me, I, I remember it was during my time at Microsoft, I got to Microsoft and and then it's when Adobe approached me about joining them. And initially when Adobe t- approached me about joining, I said no, because like my wife and I were comfortable in Seattle. I was looking for another role inside the company at Microsoft. And I, we really wanted to stay in Seattle um, for many reasons, the people, the church, um, the, op- the culture in, in Seattle. Um, but, you know, I started interviewing and, and I, I use this kind of as a way to kind of as a litmus test for companies. I have five things that are my motivators and my passions and my focus and I usually start the first one, and this is kind of in short, I'll say all these in short, but the first one is myself. Now, that's not an arrogance thing or a pride thing. It's like, I have to be good mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, right? Myself, right? And if I'm not good that way, I'm no benefit for anybody, my family, you know, my community, my career, you know, and then the second is my family, you know, my family, their spiritual, mental, emotional, physical health, um, because essentially that's my, uh, that's the greatest thing that I can leave behind in this world is like, how, you know, the type of family or, or the influence I can have on my, on my wife and kids. Um, the third thing I usually say is in spirituality, you know, that's already coupled in the first two things that I said about spirituality in the sense of like, I like to be anxiously engaged in my community in my church community and being a force for good, um, trying to help bring people closer to Christ. Right. And it's interesting. One of the ways that I've done that in my career is I actually always have a printer of Christ on my desk in my office. And it usually gets a look from people if they're not a member of the church or they'll ask me questions or they'll see it. But they know that I'm a, you know, a Christian or a God fearing person because they see a picture of Christ on my desk. Um, and the third thing is community. So I've always been involved in my and fourth thing, excuse me, is, is community. And I've always been involved in my community. So I get involved, whether it's, uh, you know, coaching soccer. So I do a lot of coaching of soccer have been since 2008. Um, I also, you know, get involved with some of the stuff that we're doing here locally around diversity, equity, inclusion. So I've been speaking and doing things like that. And then the last thing is work. And and so usually when I do this, I have my, you know, I tell people like, well, work is fifth, but it's not that it's not important. It's super important because without work, I can't do any of the other things. 
but I want you to, but I want you to understand that if I will give you a thousand percent at work, but when I'm involved in these other aspects of my life, I'm going to give a thousand percent to those things in those moments that I'm involved because they're so important. Right. And so, you know, as I've shared that, it's been, it's been exceptional to see there you know, what people have said back to me. And I've, you know, I've interviewed with a lot of companies where I've been a lot of companies I've been, and shared this to like people I speak, speak to about this. And it's fascinating because it helps me to focus, right? If I, if I know, you know, that I'm doing something that's taking me away from these things, I can easily say to myself, okay, what's going on? What area am I not focusing on? Or what am I not doing and prioritizing? Am I spending too much time on work? Right. Um, but I, you know, finding those and knowing what those are for you as an individual are going to be super critical. It's, it reminds me of, of the book um, by Clayton Christensen, you know, how do you measure your life? Right. Like it, it kind of is something I took from that. Cause like that book is so inspirational for me and I try to read it once a year because, you know, you can measure your life in different ways, but everybody will, it's up to each individual. I can't tell you her or anybody how to measure the life or what their, in, what their motivators or their passions are. But you know, I can judge myself on that and I can hopefully hold myself to that. And it's, it's provided me with a sense of confidence. You know, it's allowed me just to kind of be myself and say, like, these are things that are important to me. And if, if, if an individual or a manager or a company doesn't like those, and it's maybe that's not the right fit for me, you know, and, and I kind of have a sense of that and I know, <laughs> you know, what I can do because it's like, Hey, this is who I am. And again, it's not, it's hopefully it doesn't come across as arrogance. It's just me being honest and open with myself and being willing to share that, be vul- being vulnerable enough to share that with other individuals so that they see that these are the things that are important to me and these are the things that motivate me. And so I try to make sure that I'm balanced in those areas. And by the way, balance for me, people will say work-life balance. Work-life balance isn't nine to five. I think sometimes, you know, we can have that sense that it's nine to five. Work, work-life balance for me is being intentional about the time I spend in each of those areas. Right. So am I intentional about the time rather than saying, well, I did nine to five work. I did an hour here, did this. No, it's like when I'm doing those things, am I intentional and am I, am I focused and I try to be good at it? Am I perfect? Not at all, but I try to be <laughs> doing the intentional about how I spend that time in those areas. So what I, what I appreciate about having these, you know, being intentional about creating these personal motivators and passions is that uh, one, it naturally creates some boundaries between you and work or, you know, helps you really aim for that balance, even though maybe you don't always strike it perfectly all the time. And then also it, uh, it allows some of your identity come to come out. Like you mentioned earlier with, uh, you know, putting a picture of Christ on your, on your, at your desk at the office, it, it's, it says something about you and it, it intrigues people and helps let people into sort of your identity personality and, and what's important to you. And, and that just, I think stimulates a good, healthy environment in, in every workspace. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's powerful, right? Like you, you def, depending on the environments, like Walmart was a really good family environment. A lot of people had families there when I was at Xbox, it was a little different, you know, there wasn't a lot of families around or people with kids, you know? And so, but I was really, I would bring my kids in. People got to know my, my, my family, my kids, you know, especially my, our fourth child was born in a car on the highway. So that became one of the, that became a profound story that <laughs> that people at work at Microsoft would hear about, and so they would want to see Thatcher, you know, like, oh, who's this kid that was born in a car? Oh wow! But it does, and, and that, that's my hope, right? It creates that. Hopefully, for me, it creates that openness so people know who I am and the things that I that I'm passionate about and prioritize. But it hopefully, allows them to be comfortable as well, so they don't feel like, hey, I can't be that my that way myself, right? Like, and I have a ton of friends who have been extremely open to me, especially in a in a business prof- sense. In a, in a professional setting, excuse me, where they just opened up because they felt like they could, right? And I think that's a power of of like doing that as well because it, it kind of a, a creates that freedom and that vulnerability and willingness for people to kind of open up who they are and share a little bit more about who they are. Because in the end of the day, we go to work, we're around people all day long, you know, they should see who we are, you know, and they should understand who we are and, and have a, a little good insight into that. Love it. Uh, anything else around the concept of personal motivators and passions that we haven't said yet? No, no. The only thing I would actually, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, as you think about, you know, a lot of times when you go to business school um, or you get an MBA, uh, and we talked about this earlier, you can be single tracked, right? And I think just kind of step back and take a view of who you are and like what you really want to accomplish and, and what's important to you. Because, you know, I recently had a conversation with a recruiter and they were from a top tech company and they're like, well, where do you see yourself in three to five years? And, like, and I said to this for individuals, like, I actually don't answer that anymore because it's like, I don't know where I'm going to be in three to five years. 
you know, but I can tell you that my personal motivators are these things and I want to help make sure I maintain these things. But also the other thing that's key to me and so one of the items that I put in my five princi- six principles is learning. So I'm like, I want to extend my growth in learning. So I, instead of focusing on, I want to be this in three to five years, you know, I look for things that allow me to stretch myself, that allow me to learn. And that's where I'm going to put the emphasis when I think about where do I see myself in three to five years. And it kind of caught them off guard because they were like, oh, yeah, we've never heard anybody say that because typically people will say, I want to be this. I want to be this title. And I'm like, well, a title's a title. It's not really, it doesn't even identify anything. It just says that you have achieved this level at, at some company. And my focus is on like, well, where am I learning? Where am I growing? And where am I stretching myself? And so if you can, if a role that fits that comes up, then I'll be super interested. But if not, um, but that comes from me knowing these motivators and like having those as a priority and a, and a focus. So <laughs> I love that because that, that three to five year questions can be so cliche, especially in interview settings. And so what a, like a power reply there is like, well, I don't know, but let me tell you what I'm passionate about. And that's what I hope is in my life. And then I, it just becomes just a guiding uh, you know, a good measuring stick along the way that it's not, we're not aiming for titles here. We're, we're aiming for priorities and, you know, passions and, and uh, motivators. And that's, that's where you want to always be, right? Yeah. At least me, that's where I want to be. You know, and I think hopefully at the end of the day when I'm done with my career and, yeah. you know, whatever that looks like, I, I still have that, you know, I still have those passions and motivators that I'm still hopefully focused on. It may be a little different then because my kids will be older, but, <laughs> but, I, but I'll have some other areas that I think yeah. will still align in those, in those five areas. All right. Next principle is be an emotionally intelligent leader. Love it. Yeah. I think this one is, is, you know, for me has been key. You know, one of the things I've learned for a long time, you know, you'd always hear about IQ, you know, you know, and that was key. And I think IQ is really important being smart and having the intelligence to be able to do um, the work and then, and to fulfill the roles. But one of the things I realized quite, quite often, and especially in the professional setting and I think business schools can do a really good, better job at this, frankly, actually, is, is teaching the importance of emotional intelligence, right? The, uh, you know, and that requires us to kind of have that, that, um, that sensitivity and that somewhat compassion. You know, I think the Savior did this so often. Because you know, Savior, if I look at him as a leader, he was very compassionate, even though he directed people how to do things all the time. But he understood them. He understood their, pro- their needs. He understood some of the challenges they were facing. So he actually approached his leadership style from being a very compassionate leader and in a way like the Good Samaritan, like he would operate in that capacity. And, and we know that Good Samaritan stories about kind of exam- exemplifies the savior. But when I, when, as I've started thinking about this topic of emotion, being an emotional tenant leader, you know, I found myself as I've been leading teams or leaving groups or things like that, or, you know, how am I allowing others to really express themselves and understanding their feelings and, and their passions about things that way it allows me to better understand them and it allows me to be more effective in leading them and guiding them. It also allows me to understand how best to leverage their skill sets and their passions because I, I know that. And then not only that, but in intense situations in business, we're always surrounded, like not just in business, you know, even in even in in, in, in our communities or even things that have been happening over the last couple of years, you know, being emotionally intelligent for me is how do you respond when something happens, right? Do you, you know, in do you, do you get offended or if you get offended, how do you approach it? Are you willing to talk about your feelings? Are you willing to help people to see like, Hey, your perspectives and why this may have caused certain emotions. And that may be somewhat cliche in the business world, but I think it's important in the day and age that we're at. Cause I think we're, we're human. We're human beings. We all have emotions. We, things impact us. If you can't express those, then you keep them bottled up. And I think that does probably more detriment to you than anything else because you're not able to express them and to get them out on the table, and, and so to speak, where you can then actually do something meaningful with those, right? Maybe it's just somebody listening to you. Maybe you actually want something to transpire or something to change. But if not, being able to, to provide environments as a leader where that can be the case, where it's an emotionally intelligent, safe place for people to be in, where they know that is truly important. I actually tend to look for companies and leaders who are like that they're willing to be open in that way. And I think what I said about my passions before is one of the ways I help identify that. When, they, when I express that, I try to get a sense of how they feel about me expressing things that are somewhat emotionally um, connected. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I love the parallel with, with the savior because there are those moments of the savior demonstrating high IQ, right? When he's those mic drop moments was he's talking with the Pharisees or, or, you know, when they try and outquote him with the scriptures, he always has that reply, but What's endearing about the Savior and what draws us to him is a lot of the the emotional intelligence, you know, the way he treated people, the way he 
he read people and he read the situation. Like those are the things that draw us to the savior. So in, in your, in your effort to have high emotional intelligence, like what does that look like? Like if somebody wanted to improve their emotional intelligence, what are some things that you do in order to make that happen? Yeah, I, you know, and I continue to find different ways in doing this. You know, I think one of the, one of the ways that I've worked on this to try to do this um, has been, you know, I'll give you an example, the teams that I typically have. So my former team that I had at Adobe, when I started building this team, I told them, Hey, I want you to feel like this is a place where you can, you can actually express how you feel. And I said, and let me give you an example of what that looks like. When I make a mistake as your leader, I want you to be feel comfortable enough to say in that moment, Hey, you did this and that didn't feel good. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, because like, this is our team. This is going to be our team environment. So if we can't express ourselves or something, if I do something as a leader that is detrimental to you as one of my team members, then I want to know what that is so I can change it because that may ruin the spirit of our team or the type of culture environment they have that allows you to be effective as an individual and not just effective as an individual that could have impact of what happens to you when you leave your job and go home to your, you know, your partner, your spouse, your, your family, whoever, friends, you know, that could have an impact. And it's been, it was interesting when I did that, it, it, it has changed. And actually it was funny. One of my, a lot of my colleagues at Adobe would tell me like, you have the most amazing team. And I think it's because we all came in with this, creating this environment of emotional intelligence where we could be ourselves and express things when they weren't good and truly have that level of confidence that the other person would receive it in an emotionally intelligent way, as well as you being able to express it in an emotionally intelligent way. And a lot of companies and a lot of people have a challenge doing this, right? But I think we have to we have to be able to do it. It's how we get through our day. I, I'll use a church setting idea around this. I remember being, you know, in a, in a church calling once where I was a, in a bishopric, and you know, uh, an individual said to me like, "Hey, you were supposed to be doing this," and I was pretty upset because it wasn't really my task to do it, right? And I remember pulling this person aside and saying to them, listen, and this isn't a church calling, right? It's like, hey, I'm upset with you right now. It doesn't mean I hate you or I dislike you. I'm just upset with you right now. Let me tell you the reasons why. And it was interesting having that experience in a church calling because you don't probably hear that or have that experience. But I was like, hey, I need to tell you this person this. And then since that point, we have been, you know, we were great friends before that, but we've been even more connected since that time because I was able to express my point and my, my feelings and, and hopefully a respectful way to this individual. And they understood where I was coming from. Right. And I think that those are kind of two examples I think that I like to share. But um, I think they kind of play to the point of like, if we are, we're creating a culturally emotional safe place for people to really express themselves, which actually helps create better working environments and teams. Yeah. I, I love that. You know, it goes back to you're talking about discomfort earlier. Like, I bet that conversation with that individual in your ward was really uncomfortable in the moment. But like you said, it deepened that relationship. You're closer now. Like, you're, you're, you trust each other. Uh, in in those situations, so that you can work better together. And so, what I'm picking up from this is just that you know, as you are striving for emotional intelligence, the more you can communicate it, the more you can call it out and say, "Hey, this," and, and demonstrate it. Right? This is what emotional intelligence looks like. And then you know, good good bonds happen, unity comes to the surface, and that's awesome. Yeah. No, I think it's and it's so true. And I think. I think much, many of us want that, right? Yeah. I think we all want unity. We want strong relationships. It doesn't mean everybody will like us. I'm not saying that. That's not what emotional intelligence is, but I think it creates a, a safe place for others where they can feel, man, I think about it this way. You, we spend so much time at work, you know, and you, and you do all this great stuff. And like, it's horrible when you go to work and you have one of those days where you're just like, no one appreciates me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. And all you need is one person to say, hey, I see you. I understand you. What can I do to help? We, that's the same thing we feel about in our personal lives. Hey, if Kurt were out walking around, you know, and, and your family member saw that you were down, they said, hey, Kurt, what's going on? That's what you would want to happen, right? And that's emotional intelligence, right? Like, hey, you're, you can see it. You want to interact and kind of help and be a support or a friend or, you know, a listening ear or just kind of, you know, a safe place, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because if, if someone in my ward or my work or whatever needed, I, I hope they never have to have that conversation with me, like, hey, you're out of line, but... If, if that's how they feel, I sure hope that they do, even though it may be uncomfortable because so much good comes from it. So I love that example for sure. Yeah. Let's see. Next principle is prioritize learning and development. How have you done that? You know, I think it's, you know, through my career, um, first of all, academically obviously makes sense. We, you know, getting an MBA has helped that. But I think in my career, and this one is really pretty short for me, I think, because I think I've talked to a lot of you know, MBAs and a lot of students and like, well, how do you make career choices? 
And it's funny because, you know, a lot of them will start rattling off, well, I want this pay and I want this title. And I have three, I have like a three way, a three, um, three principles on this or three things that I consider, you know, people, and I've seen this in business and this is my shortened view of it. So, you know, take it for what it's worth, but it's like people typically when they're looking for things will look for, you know, title money or learning. And I say that because, you know, those are the three vectors that I can, that I've seen. And what happens is, you know, when you're in a career, you know, if you're looking for the next thing, is it what's driving that motivation? Right. Is it in, and what I have learned is in literally for me, is like, Hey, when I look for opportunities that help me to, and it goes back to the statement before of being uncomfortable, but when I look for opportunities that I, I'm allowed to learn where I'm stretching my mind, I'm more excited. Right. I'm, I'm more willing to dive in to kind of learn and it kind of helps me to grow. Um, I'm excited about sharing it with my family and kind of the things that I'm learning and understanding and it's, it's kind of helped me in a unique ways. And it's allowed me as I've made career decisions to look at things in terms of like, hey, that would be unique for me to do because if I did it, I would I could potentially learn this, this, and this. And I'd, learn, I'd be super uncomfortable, but I would actually have a lot of growth because I'm, I'm challenging myself. Um, you know, I was, I was hiring somebody on my last team at Adobe and, uh, you know, my, my boss said, hey, I'm not sure if we should hire this person because they don't have an enterprise software background. They came from a hardware background at Dell. And uh, I said, well, you know, this person is super passionate, though. They have an appetite for wanting to learn this SaaS business, right? And, like, I looked at his their passion and their interest, and I was like, this this, there's, this is a no-brainer. Like, I, this person, because of their passion for learning, it allowed them to be such an important part of our business and, and what we did at, at Adobe and my team. And so I, it just, that was just another example, but for that kind of just showed me, like, hey, when you're, when you're willing to learn, when you're trying to find opportunities that stretch your mind, like, you know, whether that's at work, you know, in your community, like I, over the last year, I've been doing stuff in our community and I went and helped our Highland city um, government officials talk about how we can be a more inclusive community. Right. And I have never done that before, but I said, Hey, I'm going to jump out. I'm going to put myself out there. A friend of mine invited me and we started having these conversations about what is building an inclusive community look like given all that was happening last year around race and um, you know, racism and things of that nature. And, you know, it was, that ability to say, okay, I'm going to go understand this. I want to share what I know, but I'm also willing to, I want to learn. I want to hear from other people. And so I just have a passion for that. And it's something that I really value. Um, And I think it has helped me to kind of just push myself in every facet of my life, whether it's personally or professionally. Because we often think that what we want in life or in our career are titles and a certain level of salary, when in reality, all the research shows that it's the it's the passion or the you know you want to be part of something special or something that is actually making a difference or that where you're learning and developing. I mean, that's truly what we want, and but it's easy to forget that. Right? Yeah, and it helps create that prioritization, right? Because I think, and it's funny, it's been interesting to me because people have like said like, "Well, how has that helped you?" I was like, "Well, it's funny, like when I do that." Not that this matters to me, but the title and the money comes comes along. It's kind of funny how it's worked. I'm like, well, I, I want to go learn this. And then when I'm in that process, it's like people see the passion. Like, yeah, we want this guy <laughs> or we want this person, right? And I'm like, well, it's just, it's just kind of my nature. And, I, and I'm more focused on like, this would be great because I'll learn this. And I think I can get this from this opportunity. I feel like I can give this to this team or this group of people. And so it's been something that's benefited me. And I think it's, 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 it's a different way of looking at um, your career and kind of thinking about it in context of like, what do you really want to get out of it? Because when you're when you're done with your career, you're going to take away the experiences and the things that you learn, right? It's, it's a kind of the parallel we learn in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? When we're, when we're done this life, what do we take with us? <laughs> Our relationships and the things that we learn, yeah. right? Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of similarities there in terms of uh, what we get uh, as we think about having a being a lifelong learner and kind of focusing on that area. All right, the last uh, principle, and we're going to call this a bonus principle because you added it right before we we hit record, and that is value, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm I'm excited to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, this is a this is a bonus one. I probably could have shortened our list here and kind of had this one be one of the primary ones, but it, you know, over the last six years, I've been involved in a lot of different initiatives, and especially inside of companies. And frankly, over the last year, um, I've done a lot of firesides in the church. Um, and have, you know, been involved in doing some firesides around racism and what that looks like. And it's fascinating to me kind of, you know, over the last several years, um, I remember being, so I remember being at Microsoft and this is where it all kind of kicked off with me actually coming out of business school. You know, I went to Walmart and when I was at Walmart, a friend of mine who I met, he's now in merchandising at GameStop. He said to me, hi, you don't see a lot of black people in marketing 
Um, I was like, what? Really? And I was like, why not? And I looked around in our marketing department. I think it was like 10 or 15 of us in the marketing department at Walmart. He said to me, and he said to me, like, you typically see them in sales and HR. And I was like, well, that can't be true. That's like, you know, generalizing a, a population. And through my own individual study, I, at least at Walmart, or people, I, businesses that we had business with at Walmart, I started looking. I was like, yeah, sure enough. Like, there's there's not very many in different functions. They're mostly in, in sales and, and uh, HR. And as I progressed in my career, I started to see a gap. You know, I started seeing a gap in kind of what companies were doing and not just companies, but, you know, honestly, communities too, in terms of like how, how inclusive are we? And I, I tend to focus more on incl- inclusion because I believe inclusion is what the savior was all about. You know, inclusion, like when the savior said to love thy neighbor as thyself, he was in, he was asking of each of us to be willing to accept somebody else, regardless of who they are, regardless of their background. And he did this to the woman at the well. He did this to, you know, any of the individuals he met with who were, who were considered outsiders by the Sadducees, Pharisees, and the scribes, right? He it was intentional about how he included them into every aspect and said, hey, you should be doing this as well. And we know what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. They were always saying, well, you're not following these rules. You're not doing these things that we know are part of the Moses, you know, the law of Moses and all the other things that, that had come before the, the Savior came. And so, you know, this idea of inclusion and, and treating people equitably has been has been a powerful thing uh, over the last year specifically as well, because I think a lot of companies, and a lot of people are thinking about what does that mean? And I remember uh, doing, you know, as part of the LDS MBA conference and a question came up about like, well, hey, we shouldn't just hire somebody because they're diverse. I'm like, no. But in my mind, I'm like, think about it. And historically, we also didn't hire people because they were black. Right. And I and I there's so many stories that you can hear that this has taken place. And so the question is like, what do we do to be better about it? How do we remove anything that isn't allowing us not to be inclusive of individuals and treating people equitably? Right. Because if we don't do that, in a lot of ways, especially for us as members of the church, how are we gathering Israel? Like what does gathering Israel look like? Yeah. Does gathering Israel look like, hey, you look like this, 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 and this, and so therefore, you know, <laughs> you can't be a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, that's not what it looks like. And in the business world, I think there's some similarities because, you know, I think there's, there's, there's we're not gathering Israel, but we have an opportunity to, to meet people and engage with people who are different than us. Um, and one of the things that I like to, to tell people is in the presentation that I do, I, it, and I have a picture of a car, is like, well, are you a driver? Or are you a passenger about this topic? Right. And as a driver of this topic, you're actually going to be intentional. You're going to be actually looking for opportunities to get engaged and involved. You're going to learn about it. Um, we change what we're seeing today in our country and things that we're seeing right now because people aren't willing to learn about our history to understand, well, what has been the impact of our history on people today and how do we change that so it's not the same thing in the future, right? Um, so you do that. Or you can be a passenger, which means you're just sitting by and being very passive. You're going to let things happen. You're going to say, hey, I wasn't involved. I didn't do anything. So I'm just not going to get involved. And the Savior wasn't that way. I mean, the Savior, he literally, he wasn't passive about his engagements for us. <laughs> right? Like the savior, he was all in. He was a driver and making sure that we could actually um, have the opportunities that we needed to actually return to him. And in a similar way, I, I feel we have that same opportunity when I think about this topic of value and diversity, equity, inclusion, to really do things that help people feel like they're part of, you know, our communities, our businesses. Um, it doesn't mean we have to over-rotate. I don't, I'm not a believer in that. I'm not saying swing the pendulum. I'm like, well, but are we being intentional about it? Are we understanding why people that are underrepresented aren't actually progressing in their careers? Or do we understand, you know, the impacts of them not having careers? I think most people don't even know that, um, you know, the bl- household wealth for black people is 10x less than whites or white peers or white families. And that's interesting to think about because you think about what that means in terms of how, what do they pass on to the next generation to help them improve their lives, right? This is, this is, these are data, this is, these are data points that are out there. And I only say that to say that we have an opportunity to improve that. So everybody has an equitable opportunity um, to have, to thrive and to grow and to achieve, you know, their desires. And so I can speak about this topic for a while, but I'm very passionate about it. But I think we, we all have a unique opportunity. And I think members of the church, I think have a huge opportunity because of our beliefs and what the Tate, what the, the savior teaches us as well as our modern day prophets and apostles. Yeah. I, I love that. Even, uh, you know, using the gathering of Israel perspective that we're not just trying to, you know, staff a, a corporate corporation here. Like we're literally trying to gather Israel, everybody. Right. And uh, we have to be very proactive in that. And so any other perspective or help you could give as far as like 
staying in that driver's seat uh, with around you know equity and diversity. Uh, you mentioned you know just being familiar with the history and making sure you're you're uh, up to up to speed with the the details of the history. But anything else that individuals could do to just uh, stay engaged and in the driver's seat. Yeah, it actually, and you know, in February, I launched this website with a, an agency here locally called breathinginclusivity.org. And the whole idea behind the site was to kind of provide information of what we can do. And there's this, it's a three prong approach. It's learn. So we just talked about that. Go learn, understand, have a better inter- in, um, background on this. Um, the second part is um, connect. So that's connect with an organization, you know, connect with you know, individuals who may have experienced any type of in, you know, inequities or um, exclusion, um, or just go learn from organizations who are helping in this space or go facilitate in like, you know, low income communities. This is not for me, it's, inclusion is not just a race thing. It's like, you can go out into the rural areas and have families and kids who have different experiences. Like, what do we know and understand about them and what we could do better there? But in specifically what we've experienced over the last year, I think this site is really tailored towards, you know, um, black professionals or black individuals and black communities. And the last thing is to, to act and act is all about, you know, I give some, I give some points about what we can do to act. Um, but acting also is like, what are we willing to do to stand up and make sure that these things don't happen? Right? Like, are you willing to go out when you see inequities happening or if you're in a company setting or if you're in a, um, a, a you know, church setting or a community setting, you see something like this happen, are you willing to stand up? And I'll show personal experience because this is a true, true thing for me. Where I live in Highland, Utah, you know, there's not very many people of color or black people, and I coach a soccer team. And I had this experience where I actually rent the soccer field because you're actually supposed to, but I don't think a lot of people in the community know that if you're going to use it for practice facilities purposes. So I rent the soccer field, and, and every time I would go, I'd have this this woman who would always want to debate and argue with me about, like, well, why, like, like you can't, you can't, you need to show me proof about renting the field and all this stuff. And it was became pretty worrisome for me because I'm like, hey, I'm a black individual. You know, I'm not saying this woman would say anything, but <laughs> there's been a lot of incidents recorded where, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't turn out favorably for a person who looks like me. And so I actually called the police. I said, hey, I want to be protected. And when the police got there, I said to them, I said, hey, listen, I was like, hey, I'm a black person. I know what could happen. I want to make sure that I have you here just in case anything does happen because I want to make sure that I'm protected, but I don't want this woman to be in fear of anything. But hey, I've reserve this field. I pay for it <laughs> twice a week for, to practice. And so when I say act, like in those situations, you know, like, or if you see something happening to individuals who are underrepresented, what are you doing? How are you being vocal about it? Are you telling people that's not right? I have a lot of people in my community here who reach out to me and say, um, you know, from a community standpoint, like, what do I do with my kids who are in school who are being called the N-word? You know, and that's sad to hear. Right. Um, and so that's in the community. But so acting means like, are you willing to stand up? And I think we look at the, like I think about what the Savior taught us and what we learn in Mosiah. We stand with those in need. Right. We stand as a witness. Right. Of, of all at all times. Right. And I think that's that's the thing that we can do to act. Are we willing to stand and, and not to to be harsh or to be critical? It's just like, hey, we can build a better environment. Right. We can make it better and safer for those of, of all groups and in corporations, there's a lot that can be done. Um, there's a lot that can be done from a, a recruiting standpoint, from a transparency standpoint. There's a lot that can be done to help improve environments and corporations that can make it more equitable, inclusive um, for individuals who are, you know, who are seeking like all of us to improve their lives, to have better healthcare, homes, financial status, situations. Um, and there's a lot that we can say around that. I can say around that too, but I'll leave yeah. it there. Awesome. Awesome. And and could you share that URL once again, uh, breathing in diversity? Was that it? It's breathinginclusivity.org. Yep. Okay. And we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes so that people have a quick place to click on it. And, and that, what a great resource to, and, and sort of a structured plan to, to maintain that driver's seat in, in this issue. So, uh, and again, that's probably... We definitely didn't get enough airtime here, but uh, definitely a good starting point for now. And, and uh, hopefully people check that out. So, Oh, no, no, that's great. Thank you, Kurt. Renell, this has been fantastic, really insightful. I've been inspired by many of these principles. And uh, any anything else, any other organization or things, you know, anything you want to plug before we, we wrap up? I got one more question for you. But if there's any other uh, way if people can reach out to you, any, anything else? 
No, yeah. I mean, please, uh, you know, you can follow the website. Uh, the only thing I would plug is, you know, I um, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, happy to engage with folks. And I'm always interested in meeting people. I mean, again, like I said at the beginning, I love meeting people. I'm curious about people. And, and it's been great, you know, getting to know you a little bit, Kurt. So look forward to meeting you in person sometime to learn more about you and, and what you do. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free. LinkedIn's a great place. You can follow me on Instagram if you like and to learn more and see what I share about. But um, looking forward to connecting with anybody who would like to keep get connected. Awesome. The last question I have for you is just, if you were standing in a room full of uh, MBA uh, students or alumni, what final encouragement would you give to them? That's a good, that's a good question. You know, life is, life is short. And I say that because our careers can also be short. (laughs) And so um, I believe I'm a firm believer, have an impact and having an impact isn't just the work that you do at your desk and the work that you drive. I think the impact that I'm thinking of is the personal connections that we made. We, we can make. I think that's been probably the most rewarding thing for me in my career, um, being able to meet people from all over the world um, who I've been able to connect with on a personal level, and now we're lifelong friends. And it's interesting, and I'll share this tidbit. And I, you know, we may have people who are not members of our faith, but you know, we who listen to this, but we have something we call a patriarchal blessing. And in my patriarchal blessing, it, was, it says specifically, I'll be able to share the plan of salvation with, with my associates. And over the years, that word associates has become really definitive for me in terms of like, I've been fortunate and blessed to be able to be an example of the Savior to many people I work with. I never had to say I was a member of the church. If they asked me, we talked about it. But I think we have a, a massive opportunity to inspire the world um, from doing business day to day and being examples of the Savior and, and how we do business and how we treat others and our willingness to to exemplify that and both our words and our behavior. And so it's, it's, you know, it's one of my aspirations and I try to do better at that every day. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society. <laughs>